0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice. This week's guest is Dr. Angel Brutus. Angel is the Assistant Athletic Director and Director of Counseling and Sports Psychology at Mississippi State University in the Southeastern Conference. Prior to her work with Mississippi State, she had her own private practice in clinical and sport performance counseling called Synergistic Solutions which she continues to operate in a new way, focused on mentorship for those looking to get into the field of sports psychology. She's had a very unique path to get where she is today, and you will be impressed with what she has to share, and I hope you enjoy. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice, and with me this week... Dr. Angel Brutus. Angel is uh, someone I've known for a while. Uh, I actually taught her in the sport and performance psychology program at University of the Rockies, which is now uh, University of Arizona Global Campus, and uh, no question, one of our best ever, if not the best that's come through our program, and I am so honored to have you on today. So, Angel, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Rice. It's exciting to, to reconnect with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been, been a little bit, but you've been really busy and we're looking forward to hearing more about how busy you've been and all the things you've been doing. So tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Angel. Tell us uh, about your background, where you're from originally, uh, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to be as, as succinct and brief with that as possible. Uh, so I, I'll start with the educational background. Undergrad, uh, got my bachelor's degree in speech-language pathology at the University of Tennessee, um, and then went on to get my master's in rehabilitation counseling. Uh, specifically, it's a, a counseling degree that Helps you to kind of look through the lens of a medical model Um, so it's not necessarily the traditional generalist kind of counseling background Um, and then as you've you've stated i eventually went back to school to get my doctorate in sport and performance psychology and had the pleasure of being under your tutelage and direction so it's been a a pretty wild academic um, experience you know being a young young lady who grew up partially in detroit michigan and partially in knoxville tennessee and uh, yeah, so I, I don't know what else to say in terms of I could go on and on about some of the experiences that have shaped, shaped me um, in terms of where I am now, but really looking forward to, to delving a little bit more into the conversation.
0: <laughs> sure. Well, I, I want to jump in and, uh, you know, take you back to your days in Knoxville at the University of Tennessee. If you could share a little bit about the people that you kind of uh, rubbed shoulders with
1: yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's you know not a big secret. You know, University of Tennessee is a historically white institution, um, and at the time when I was there, it was less than four percent minority student population total. That's not just black students, but that students in, in total in terms of uh, students that identified as not being white. Um, and so, as you can imagine, with that small percentage, when you look at the the micro percentage of the black students. Um, you know, we had general students on campus, but then we also had um, a a certain number of athletes as well. And so I had the great fortune of being really close to a lot of our student athlete population that was on campus. Um, And, you know, in the midst of that experience, I also worked in athletics um, as a student worker. And so I worked for, you know, football recruiting, I worked for uh, recruiting for all of our spring sports. I think the only sports that I wasn't affiliated with at the time was both men and women's basketball. But even with those, um, those students were also my friends. And so, you know, the the sport world was kind of like the the fabric of my uh, University of Tennessee experience. And it was a fascinating time to be there as well, too, because it was definitely a culture of excellence. Um, that was, you know, of course, the times of Pat Summit and, you know, Coach Philip Fulmer for football and uh, we hosted a lot of sea relays that produced a lot of Olympic hopefuls, and um, we did great in baseball. We did, you know, great in track and field. Um, we had a pretty dominant, you know, tennis culture there as well. So I think, you know, from a sport perspective, um, being around that level of culture of excellence and being kind of embedded in it um, on the, you know, behind the scenes and behind the curtains has really shaped the way that I even now go about the day-to-day that I do and the work that I do. And um, it also forged like lifelong, you know, relationships and friendships. Um, You know, we had the 98, you know, uh, championship football team, of course, you know, Pat Summit in the number of championships that, you know, she's been able to garner and um, seeing her coaching legacy live on with a lot of my friends who are now, also coaches at different programs and making history. You know, one of my close college friends is like the godfather of my middle daughter. And so, you know, when I say it really has produced some long life, you know, lifelong uh, relationships, it, it's really true. Um, and actually those friendships and those relationships are what convinced me to to go ahead and, and bite the bullet and, and pursue my doctorate in sports psychology at one point in time.
0: So uh, tell us a little bit about and we're going to come back to that in a second um, about your Tennessee experience. But so what's your current position?
1: Yes. Yeah, so right now I'm currently serving as assistant athletic director for counseling and sports psychology. Um, it's a role where. I have some administrative duties, and I also carry a, a caseload, so both clinical and sport performance, providing both individual as well as group-related work, um, facilitating workshops, um, you know, supervising trainees, uh, supervising the small staff, uh, looking at you know, negotiating and managing an operational budget. So it's like this little bitty department inside of a, a larger department um, to be able to function and operate in the way that really helps to support the the needs of our student athletes, but also from a a systems lens where we also address the needs of um, members of the athletic system. So whether it's the coaching staff or whether it's administration, uh, providing psychoeducational services to them and helping to helping them to tap into resources that may be necessary for them. Um, You know, part of that is just part of the philosophy that I've always had is that, you know, In order to address the needs of one, you also have to make sure that you address the needs of the system. And so that's what we've been able to build here at uh, Mississippi State University.
0: So regarding that, that's why I was going to bring it back to Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously it was well between you had a lot of space between your your experience uh, as a student at Tennessee and then, of course, uh, you know, getting uh, your educational uh, stuff finished at the University of the Rockies and then getting the opportunity Mississippi State. What's it like to be a Tennessee grad at Mississippi State?
1: <laughs> so I get that question often. Uh, the SEC is, is, is strong, right? And so at the end of the day, we support each other, all 14 member institutions, no matter where we go, uh, even though we compete against each other, right? And so, you know, my role and my position, I'm actually embedded in the, Uh, department of uh, sports medicine and performance and it's funny because in our training room there are multiple colleagues that are from different sec institutions and so it's almost quite comical uh you know i get the question about you know where where do your loyalties lie and it's like you know I'm, i'm alum at ut but my loyalties lie with the student that sits in front of me right now right so i can't i can't um I can't go against the grain when it comes to being loyal to the students that I serve.
0: <laughs> oh, sure. I love that. That's a great philosophy to have, obviously. Um, now, I want to kind of take it back a little bit. You know, uh, obviously, getting into a role in a sports psychology role like you are in currently, you know, you had to get a start in, the, in your sports uh, journey, right? So so where did you get your start in sports? What, what led you to love sport?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, I think it really started in my high school years. I'm kind of a late bloomer when it comes to being an athlete. Uh, I actually competed in both volleyball and softball, and I'm going to throw cheer in there as well. A lot of people roll their eyes about cheer, but cheer is definitely a sport. Um, And so, you know, with that, I actually had interest also in tennis, but the uh, high school that I attended, they actually ended their, their tennis program. And so, you know, those were the two sports that I ended up competing in was volleyball and and softball. And uh, both of them really did kind of shape me in a number of different ways. You know, obviously from an athlete lens, having that level of discipline that's necessary, time commitments and responsibilities and balancing all of those things at once and still um, kind of performing at a high level academically and, and sport wise and, and, really appreciating the physical activity that comes with it, Um, you know, especially as a teen and as a teen girl coming into sport at an age where, you know, now looking back on it, that's the age where most people, most girls specifically drop out of sport is when I actually entered sport. And so it's been an interesting kind of road um, to come in as late as I did. And then to also see the sport world from a collegiate level, from a different lens and not being an athlete, but being more of a supportive um, individual. So it's been pretty cool.
0: So when you think about that, um, and obviously, uh, uh, when I interview some people in these uh, podcasts, I will have uh, times where I'll be talking to folks, and they have like this almost tailor-made climb from, oh, well, I played sports as a, in Little League, and then I did this and this and this and this, and then next thing I know, I'm a Major League Baseball player. Uh, <laughs> your, yours was a little bit different. But during the time that you were climbing up uh, and getting to the place where you are, I mean, who's held the ladder for you during your climb to the great heights that you've gotten to thus far?
1: Oh, wow. That is a loaded question, Dr. Rice. Uh, You know, and I'm not saying this just because you're the person that's on the other end of this, but You had a lot to do with that. Um, You know, when I made the decision to go back to school, you know, I was, you know, quote unquote, non-traditional student. It was I was already a mom of three at that point. Um, I went back to school with a six month old. Right. And so I didn't have time to play around. Uh, I think part of that process and making the decision to even go back to school specifically for sports psychology really, as I, I look back on it, it had a lot of influence on my friends that I made in, in my years at UT. Um, those who were former athletes, or I'm not going to say former because once an athlete, always an athlete, but individuals who competed at UT and then went on to experience great success at the professional level and some at the Olympic level. Um, the, the level of support that I was able to be for them as a, a peer um, navigating that particular campus during that time, um, was not lost upon them, and as we continue to kind of talk about, you know, just our futures in general, um, because it's always been a conversation of what would life be like for them after sport, and you know, when I needed a ear to to listen to and and kind of tell them about this crazy idea of going back to school to get my doctorate in, in sports psychology, um, you know, overwhelmingly the response from a number of different friends was, "Angel, you you've been doing it, you're already doing it, so why not just make it official." And so I I, you know, I'm grateful for them uh, to be able to see something that I didn't necessarily see. And then ultimately I also have to acknowledge my husband um, because at the time, you know, I was already licensed as a master's level clinician and really had no desire to pursue licensure as a psychologist uh, because the return on investment just would not be worth it for me at that stage of my my life and, and stage of my career. And, um, so originally I was supposed to go back and get a second master's in sports psychology. Uh, but then my husband said, if you're going to go back to school, you might as well get your doctorate. You're not going to walk around here with two master's. And I was just like, all right, I, I captain. So, uh, you know, he had a lot to do with it. Um, because there's no way that you can do any of this without having that level of all in support, um, especially being a wife and being a mother, Um, And those roles and responsibilities that come along with it. So I think that's the, those are the catalyst relationships, I think. And then over the course of time, being, you know, very blessed, honestly, to connect and engage with other individuals that were in the field, um, who had a genuine interest in building a sense of community, I think has really helped to honestly propel my um, my professional ladder climb, so to speak, uh, to the point now. And it's funny because as I continue to reach for others, others continue to reach for me. And so it really has been this um, very reciprocal, I don't know if that's the word to use, but this pattern of give and more is given. It's it's quite interesting to see it unfold.
0: Wow. Well, you brought up something that I think is very important and that is in this industry, I don't care what you do in sport, you have to have a supportive spouse. And <laughs> I, I, that's something I hear over and over again in my interviews on the podcast. Um, and I can certainly say, because of course, you know, Candy, uh, my wife, the smarter of the two doctors, Rice. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, without her support, when I was going through to earn my doctoral degree in 2005, and then her, Uh, attempt and success in earning her PhD at the University of Rockies in 2015, you know, we, we, it was reciprocal. It was a, it's about supporting each other. And there are times where, you know, you are holding a ladder for others to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible. And then there are times when people have to hold it for you. And um, so it's really neat to hear that from you as far as, uh, as your husband and, um, you know, the question I would have uh, regarding what you do in your job, okay, and, and it's a big job when you're over the entire athletic programs, uh, psychological services pretty much at Mississippi State University, but what are the biggest challenges that you face day-to-day and what you do?
1: <laughs> I think one of the biggest challenges is, you know, Having an idea of what your day to day is going to be for the day, and then it completely gets busted up, right? And that's the same thing that we kind of work with our athletes on, right? Having that, that necessity to be flexible and, and demonstrate agility when necessary. And boy, do they, d- does the position ever so uh, create opportunities for that? I think at this point, sometimes it's like. Strategically placing white spaces on your calendar because you know for sure something is going to pop up, and you 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 can't you can't sacrifice the quality um, in order to always be in crisis mode, right? And I'm using crisis in a loose term right here, um, and so I think that has been one of the biggest challenges. I think is is really helping not just myself, but also being responsible for ensuring that my staff adopts that that level of agility and flexibility that's necessary to meet whatever the demand calls for. Because um, it's, you know, it's not uncommon to get a message from a student or get a message from a coach or because of the way that we've been able to build our program here um, or to get a message from a campus partner or the dean's office or things of that nature. And so that, you know, I'm not saying that that's unique to our our department, but because we do have such rich relationships with a number of different campus partners and different um, athletic department partners, you know, we are are pretty much go tos for a lot of different things. And and you know, because of the areas of expertise and the the makeup of the background for myself and my staff, uh, you know, we contribute a lot to the campus community as well. And so, you know, it's not uncommon for The cultural diversity Center to to reach out to us and ask us if we're available to come and talk with their staff or. um, be a part of collaborating with a a special project or collaborating with the title IX office, Um, so I, I can just go on and on, and so I think it's a challenge, but it's also a blessing to be able to have that level of reach. Um, because ultimately having that level of reach and the exposure to all of those different departments and different services helps to enrich the experience that we can bring back to the student athlete who otherwise wouldn't even know that some of these, you know, resources or, um, services even exist on campus.
0: Right. Well, I was going to bring something up and I know you've been heavily involved in the Association for Applied Sports Psychology or ASP for a Mm -hmm. long time. Um, can you kind of uh, give an overview of what ASP is to the audience, but also kind of tell us a little bit about how your involvement with ASP has helped you be able to be the very best you can be in your role there.
1: Oh my gosh. I don't think that I would be in the position that I'm in now had I not been engaged with that particular organization. Um, So the association for applied sports psychology is an organization that's made up of uh, members across nations, right? And so a lot of times people have the assumption that it's a United States-based organization, but it's not. It's It's an international organization. And with that, I've been able to really garner a lot of close relationships with a number of different practitioners with diverse backgrounds in this world of sport. And so it's made up of a number of individuals who may be trained in, you know, exercise science and kinesiology, um, a number of individuals who are trained in clinical psych, um, obviously sports psych, um, even sports psychiatry. Um, there are, are quite a few members that are starting to come on board with ASP in the psychiatry realm. Um, and I, I, I point that out because uh, a lot of people don't realize that sports psychology was actually birthed out of the, the field of uh, physical education. And because of that, because it has psychology as part of its, you know, title in the field, a lot of people will probably um, assume that it has everything to do with the psychological aspects, and it does. But there's so much more to it. Everyone is on the clinical side of things of the spectrum, and not everyone is um, completely just on the mental skills and performance enhancement side of the spectrum. There are quite a few people who operate at the intersection of both, Um, and so ASP does a really good job of being that professional home for individuals across the spectrum of backgrounds um, and areas of expertise. And so it's been a really good experience for me. And ironically, I didn't even know it existed until I was taking um, a course through University of Rockies and happened to be working on uh, reading content to, to post a discussion and came across its listing in one of the textbooks. And I was just like, oh, what is this? And then I looked it up and lo and behold, they were actually hosting a conference in my background at the time I was living in Atlanta. And they were hosting a conference in Atlanta the week after me reading its existence. And so I went on ahead and signed up because, you know, me, Dr. Rice, I jump in with two feet for everything. Went on ahead and signed up. And not only did I sign up, I joined as a member without even knowing what I was joining with. And they were looking for, I think it was they were looking for students to serve as, you um, at the time, it was like uh, conference hosts or something like that. So you essentially like are a person who is like a timekeeper in one of the presentation rooms and things of that nature. And um, yeah, that was the beginning of a a really good relationship with Ask moving forward.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I I know that with uh, the the organization, obviously, is the. organization that provides the CPMC which is is pretty much you know the standard for any sport informed psychology expert uh, out there and um, I know that uh, obviously you're you're CPMC um, but the when I think about the uh, overall skills that uh, a sport informed psychology expert has to have obviously it's very vast but when you think about the skills that an SPP would have compared to any other sport professional? I mean, do you think that there's any real separation or, I mean, what, what do you think? It's
1: unique in its own right. Um, I think there, you know, obviously you could, people could go on to ask website and see what the requirements are for CMPC. And I would say that those are the baseline requirements. I think there's a lot more to it. Um, you know, with any kind of certification route, it's really about understanding um, how to gather the core competencies um, at a baseline level. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean expertise, right? And so there's there's a difference there. Um, I think, you know, for for this profession, there are a number of different things that I could probably say are are necessary to emphasize. Um, but I'm also one that you know, is kind of like a learning junkie, uh, so I, I love to learn. I don't chase letters. There are letters that come with all these doggone certifications that I end up getting. Uh, it's more so about the knowledge and the understanding that, that um, I really value, and so with that, I think in order to, to really be successful in this field, there has to be the adoption of a learner's mentality because things get archived, things become archaic, Um, the clientele, the parents, uh, if you're dealing with youth sports or adolescents uh, in sport, uh, you know, the clientele, the parents are very sophisticated, right? And so, you know, it doesn't take anything to Google or look at a podcast, listen to a podcast or look at a YouTube video or whatever the case may be and get the fundamental quote unquote mental skills aspects um, right on demand. It's another thing to work with a professional who, understands in real time what it's like to have some of your cognitive resources be hijacked and then that has implications for your reaction time or that has implications for the tension response that your body has and understanding the difference between you know what are some of the things that are necessary to hyper focus on or relevant cues for open sports versus closed sports and those those sports that require for you to make adjustments and decisions in short periods of time in comparison to those sports where you have all the time in the world to get into your head and then you might experience the yips in golf. And so, you know, it's one thing to be able to access those resources on demand. I think it's another thing to work with a professional who has taken the time to not only know the basics, but also continue to learn and understand and appreciate the lived experiences of each of the athletes that they're working with and what is required for them to optimize their performance in a way um, that is meaningful. And, you know, for me, because I I am one of those people that operates at the intersection of both clinical and sport performance, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say there has to be some level of awareness uh, when it comes to clinical signs. Uh, Even if you're not a clinical practitioner, being able to recognize those signs and be willing to um, acknowledge the necessity to pursue additional help, uh, whether that's, you know, whether it's you know pursuing help from someone who is dually trained or whether it's pursuing help from someone who is clinically trained and then also providing the adjunct services from a sport performance standpoint, because unfortunately um, there can be uh, the assumption that a clinical person can also provide services to an athlete or a high elite performer, um, not recognizing that some of the traditional interventions might actually be a detriment to performance, if not careful. And so I think, yeah, in order to be successful in this field, you've got to be willing to, to uncover the things that you don't know and be willing to put in the work to continue to learn. That so, was a very
0: long answer. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's a good one. It's a good one. I appreciate it. Well, and I would say, too, like, uh, the, obviously, those are things that any sport professional, whether they're in the SVP field or they're in sports sales or whatever, I mean, that they could use. I mean, are there other things that I suppose that other skills that you can think of that any sport professional needs, uh, whatever the, uh, their uh, segment is in the sport industry, as far as essential for success?
1: Yeah, I think sport industry as a whole, whether it's, you know, in SPP, or whether it's, you know, at the collegiate level, the professional level, um, I think it's necessary to understand how to to really read systems, um, and recognizing the different stakeholders within the system. So whether it's the performer, whether it's the coach, whether it is the Administrators, uh, front office staff, depending on your institutional structure, um, whether it's also, you know, the fan base, um, and you can't you can't forget the the individuals who are part of the officials and the umpires and and things of that nature. So there's so many different aspects to a sports system, including marketing, right? So you have your external affairs and your internal affairs. You have your equipment people. You have it's so much that goes into ensuring that a sporting event takes place um, from the ticket office to your donors to like, it's just so much that takes place. And so I think the one skill, if anything that any sport professional in any realm or capacity needs to understand the necessity to begin to understand the different stakeholders that are within the system.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And then there is, it is a very deep and wide industry, especially. And that's the one thing that I'll never forget when I was the head men's basketball coach at Hiram college in the Cleveland, Ohio area. One of the things we had to do was go fundraise, uh, you know, to, to make ends meet for our program. And one of the things that when I, I kind of inherited this from the previous coach, uh, when I got there, but they were selling concessions at Cleveland Browns football games, and, uh, and I remember getting going to one game, I said, after that Sunday, I said, no, we're not doing this anymore. Um, <laughs> There are better ways to raise money. But anyway, we, we, uh we did, I did one uh, Sunday with our guys and I'll never forget getting there like at 6am and it was early and there were people already there and it was just a, a machine mm-hmm. and, and it really is, I think that a lot of people don't. That really get into the industry, I think sometimes they don't understand how important it is to truly be cross-trained and be able to do many different things. I mean, do you find the same thing in kind of your job? It sounds like you wear a lot of hats in what you do.
1: Yeah, I I think what you just stated is 100% true. Uh, Being cross-trained is necessary. Uh, Oftentimes when I get approached by individuals who are interested in in doing this work uh, you know i often ask you know well, why what is what is so attractive about this particular role like what is it that you're looking to get out of this and they're like oh well i love to marry you know my my love for sport and i, I love psychology and so i thought it would be a great thing and just like i'll be honest with you this is not a sexy job at all um, it is nowhere near sexy uh, because it, it does require multiple hats and having the ability to, as, you know, God rest his soul, Ken revisit would say, you know, be where your feet are. Uh, you need to be where you need to be, where you need to be there. Um, and at the same time, having the long vision simultaneously, right? And so being able to almost not predict, because predict is not the right word, and it does definitely does not uh, fit in the world of sport, because nothing is predictable, um, no matter how many people attest that it is. Um, it's being able to almost play chess, right? So having the foresight and kind of seeing how things might potentially play out and then also seeing alternatives to that playing out and then having like a, a backup plan C and D and E for the potentials. And then also being able to give yourself enough grace and recognizing that even with all of your planning, there's still something that you didn't come up with. (laughs)
0: oh wow giving yourself grace that's one thing i haven't heard yet on any of the interviews and and that's so critical um we i think many times in this industry i think so many times we feel like we have to be perfect and that we're perfectionists and everything and of course as your chair you knew that that was my uh mo somewhat uh for your dissertation but you know i think that ultimately we we also have to be able to be uh we need to forgive ourselves at times as well i mean uh, and not not put so much pressure on ourselves and what great advice grace what an incredible <laughs> thing awesome
1: well <laughs> well you next, know i'm a fellow perfectionist as well so we we, we worked really well together because yes yeah.
0: <laughs> yes we totally did you're absolutely right <laughs> totally um so uh you obviously landed at mississippi state of course uh for anyone that's got a faith background, it was God's will, but I would also say, too, that you had to know some people or at least make some connections. So how important is networking in in this field, and how do you approach it?
1: Oh, that's another loaded question. Um, networking is is, is, is the bedrock of this field, if I have to be honest. Um, I think it was, I can't remember who it was that told me this, but it always stuck with me. They said, you know, it's not so much about who you know, it's about who knows you exist. And, you know, um, there are times where you do get phone calls um, out of the blue and it's from an organization that says hey i was given your number by so and so they said that you might be a good you know fit for this you know we approached them and you know either either one they didn't have the capacity to do it because of scheduling conflicts or b they recognized that maybe you would be a better fit for what it is that we're looking for and i you know when earlier on in my career and i'm still in my early stages of my career in this so this is the crazy part about it but earlier on Um, I remember people saying that I was just like, Oh, that sounds like some kind of like good old boy system or nepotism or whatever. And it really is true that you do get these phone calls out of the blue. And so you never know who's speaking your name. um, But more importantly, you never know who's watching. Um, And so you know, not to not to scare anyone off, but I think it's important to recognize um the necessity to to really be as authentic as you can be uh because you can't wear a mask uh when people are calling you up and saying hey that so and so thought you'd be a good fit for this and then you have to somehow conjure up right and so it's easier to to be organic and and very candid and 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 fully yourself in those moments Um, It also reminds me of, you know, what we tell, you know, our athletes all the time is you have to be ready when your number is called. (laughs) Because, as you know, in the world of sport, everyone needs something like yesterday. Nothing is like, you know, down the line. Everything is yesterday. Um, That sense of urgency is very real in this culture. Um, And I say that because the part of networking that is critical in this particular field is understanding that the work that you do is your brand and your actions your behaviors the work that you do speaks volumes way more than anything that you can tout or advertise um, because you know in in this industry you can it, you can sniff it out uh, from a mile away if it's not authentic if it's not genuine and if it, it's not something that is sustainable um, because you know this is a very much results-oriented culture um, and results can look in many different ways. Um, and so the networking piece that's important is because when you go out there and you accept an opportunity, you're not only accepting that opportunity for yourself, you're also accepting the opportunity based off of the reputation of the person who put your name in the room. And, oh boy. and yeah, and you can't take that light at
0: all. No, absolutely. Thank goodness. Thank you for bringing that up. You know, I I think that that's one of the things that's so very, very important is that, you know, and, and through the years for me, there've been many times, and of course this is the holding a ladder in sport and leadership podcast, right? So I'm, I'm all about holding a ladder to help people climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible, right? That's my, my motto in life and everything. But ultimately, you know, the reputation of someone who goes and puts their neck on the line for mm-hmm. someone to have that opportunity to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible. I mean, it matters. And so um, that's why I think it's so important to know that I think that well, I'll ask this question, do you think that when it comes to holding a ladder, do you think that you have to vet to hold the ladder for someone? In other words, you do you have to vet people to make sure that they're uh, worthy of being, having the ladder held for? Just curious.
1: I think, so it kind of goes back to our earlier conversation about my experience at the University of Tennessee. Um, The reason, amongst many others, I think one of the main reasons why I've been able to have long lasting relationships with a lot of my friends who competed at high levels and, went on to experience success in a number of different ways, uh, whether it's at the pro level, Olympic level, or even in business. Um, it has been that level of guardedness um, because you know people like to become popular by proximity. And that was a very real experience for a lot of my peers growing up. And that has always stuck with me and it continues to actually be a part of the fabric of a lot of our relationships um, that we have now as you know adults and um, because of the role that I'm in professionally it comes naturally for me to have that guardedness up Um, because on the surface you know I kind of mentioned this or alluded to this a little bit earlier On the surface or on the outside looking in, a lot of people think that this work is sexy or being affiliated with sport is sexy. And, you know, they, for some people, there's an agenda to want to be popular by proximity. And, um, and so, you know, you're that's a lens that I always hold, but I've also held that for over 20 something years. And that's not a lens that I'm willing to give up. And so, yes, when, when people approach me, about the possibility of garnering interest in this field i'm more than happy to answer questions about it i'm more than happy to point you in the direction of resources and things of that nature it gets a little bit more dicey when an individual then wants to i don't want to say encroach because that's not the correct word but that's what it feels like Um, it feels a little invasive when they um, for some reason, want to instantly gain access to all there is to this work without ne- without necessarily demonstrating the the foundational things that you look for in terms of integrity, in terms of understanding the human side of these individuals who are looked upon as commodities at times, and and so those are the things that I'm constantly looking at in kind of for for lack of a better word um being very attuned to um in my conversations with with people
0: sure well um i wanted to bring this up and it it i also think you have to uh, you people have heard about a relationship bank right and you know sometimes you can if you develop a great relationship with someone and you know you can go back to the bank For that. You know, if something is asked, hey, I need a favor, you can go to the relationship thing. Um, But when someone comes in and doesn't really have a relationship and they just want, and I'm sure you've probably had some people like, oh, yeah, it's great to meet you. And then the next thing they know, you you know, and think next thing you know, rather, that they're asking you to be a reference. Well, I mean, you don't (laughs) even know this person from Adam or Eve. And I think that that's one of the things for me is that, you know, uh, I try to keep. Uh, And of course, you know me pretty well. I'm, I'm, I'm someone that can talk to almost anyone. So I've got connections all over the place, but I try to keep my inner circle kind of tight and close. And, um, it it sounds like you kind of might as well.
1: Mm -hmm, Definitely. I, it's, it's a necessity, honestly. Um, it really is, uh, yeah there's obviously as you can imagine there's like literally no pillow talk at my house with my husband he has no he says being married to me is like being married to the CIA he has no idea what my day-to-day is right.
0: <laughs> that's a good one that's awesome um you know for me it's totally different because my wife and I uh basically we work from home so we know mm-hmm. we do something that's very we're both faculty members um What's one piece of advice that you give to someone who's deciding to start a career in sports right now? It could be any industry in sport or any segment of sport.
1: Build your endurance, build your tolerance. um, Be willing to reconcile the difference between what you anticipate and what the reality is. Um, And always revisit the reasoning behind why sport because sport can appear in many different domains, it doesn't necessarily have to always be in the athletic domain.
0: Yeah, Um, there's a a great Christian psychologist by the name of Dr. Henry Cloud, and one of my favorite books uh, I've ever read is one that he wrote called Integrity, and he came up with a, um, you brought up, you talked about reality connected to that, he brought up uh, in his book, Integrity, he brought up a, a definition for integrity, and it's meeting the demands of your reality. And mm-hmm. I think that in the world that we live in, uh, and especially in this business, in this industry, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, you know, it could be quick and uh, somewhat painful or painless, depends on who you are and what you. situation <laughs> is. Mm-hmm. But I know for me, I've, I've had a lot, I've had ups and downs through the last 30 years of being involved in, in sport um, at a relatively high level. But I, I think that you have to be able to meet the demands of what your reality is now. And so when I talk with students and uh, I talk with um, folks that are wanting to, maybe that they're stuck in a rut right now and they, they're trying to get their next opportunity, I always talk to them and say, look, you know, do what's what you have to do based on what your reality is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, you can shoot for the stars and, you know, you may miss, but you will be out there in the uh, galaxy alongside them. But I, I know for me, it's been, you know, I always feel like, uh, uh, you know, preparation is key. And uh, and I think that your, uh, your advice there was really great. Now, uh, last thing, how do you hold a ladder for others? <laughs>
1: um, not taking for granted the position that I'm in right now, um, you know, being really engaged and involved with training program opportunities um, here at MSU, I think has been a really rich opportunity to help identify, individuals who otherwise might be looked over. Um, and, you know, recently we've been a part of being a part of the um, the major site rotation uh, for the student counseling services department on campus, um, specifically for those who are at the tail end of their training as um, budding psychologists, uh, licensed psychologists. And um, it has been, you know, Each year that I've been here, we've been, you know, blessed to have a, cohort. well, not each year, the first year we didn't have it, but the second year I was here was the first year that they've had this opportunity. And to be able to welcome a cohort um, each year moving forward has been a real eye-opening experience uh, in terms of being a part of the interviewing process and helping to do the ranking and uh, hopefully getting matched with individuals who are Um, interested. And, and so over the the last three application opportunities, um, even this upcoming year, the number of applications to MSU specifically um, has increased in terms of percentage of those who specifically want to do their rotation in athletics. Um, And so really excited about that. And then I would also be remiss if I didn't, you know, highlight or point out that that has also increased the diversity of the applicant pool. Um, And so the opportunity and the potential to hopefully make an impact on the diverse representation of individuals who are eventually qualified to be hired to do such work as this, um, I think cannot be overlooked as well. And so I think, you know, for me holding the ladder for others is really, being a part of processes behind the scenes that helps to open the door and serve as a gateway for limitless opportunities for others.
0: Well, that I love that. That's a great I need to write that down. That, that was a great <laughs> saying. Um, and for anyone at home, you should write it down too. Um, <laughs> listening. So uh, Angel, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day there at Mississippi State in Starkville, Mississippi. Um, It's an honor. Obviously, I'm so proud of what you've done and and what you're going to do as you continue to go forward. And uh, how would you like to close today?
1: Oh, my. Um, I think I would like to close by just expressing my sentiments to you. Um, I will never forget the day when we were doing our in-person weekend intensives. And you had us to write doctor in front of our names. And that was the first time that I visually um, consumed or even allowed myself to consider the possibility of finishing that marathon that we were on. Um, and so, you know, I, I have always held that and it's been in, in, entrenched in my brain at this point. And that really has helped to shape the way that I hopefully approach others who are going through the process um, who are early in their you know career trajectory um who are early in their training and and to really be able to have the foresight and the vision to be able to see that on the other end and and bringing that into the room was priceless for me so thank you for that
0: oh i'm glad i well thank you for saying that and I really believe that when it comes right down to this life we live, that, you know, you have to truly believe in what you can become and uh, not having a can't mentality. And, you know, to be able to be successful, you're going to have your doubters. You're going to have people that are going to say, uh, you know, I'm a great example of that. You know, growing up in South Alabama and barely graduating college or high school and people saying, yeah, you're you're never going to amount to anything, but it really doesn't matter what other people think. It's really what you think deep down inside. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, I use that in every one of my in-residences. And it's amazing how many of the the people who have been through the in-residences come to me at graduation and they say, Dr. Rice, I still have my name tag. I still have my table tag, uh, tent from in residence with doctor on it. And I had it in my office and I would look at it every day. And I think that we have to be in our role as ladder holders. We have to be willing to offer up hope. And uh, I think that that's something obviously that you do exceptionally well in what you do at Mississippi State. And you've done it for many years and uh, I appreciate you uh, being willing to come on today and, and uh, some great information. So thank you so much.
1: <laughs> thank you so much for having me. And it was great. Like I said earlier, it's great to just reconnect. It's always a pleasure to hear your voice.
0: <laughs> yeah, Same here, same here. Well, uh, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on Monday next week. Hope you have a great week. Take care. Thanks for listening, and until next week, I challenge you to hold a ladder for someone to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible.